Welcome to this week's Property Matters. It's the first show of 2020. A happy new year to all. And you can contact us on Twitter at iPropertyRadio or by email at hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Your host today is myself, Carol Tallon. Brian Fox is away today, but he will be joining us over the next few weeks. And uh, we've an exciting lineup ahead for our very first show of the decade. Um, up first and in studio with me today is Barry Cull, Head of Homes in South Dublin for AIB. Barry, we're delighted you were able to join us in studio today. So, a, a new year, a new decade, homes in South Dublin, where do we start? Yeah, and thanks for having me on, Carol. I suppose, um, yeah, it, it, it's that time of year, I think, where people start to consider maybe whether it's a move or, or potentially getting on the, the property ladder because I think there's conversations had over Christmas and big decisions made. So That's that's always the way. The new is, year is a great yeah. time for the property market and sometimes it isn't recognised as that but I actually always think that big decisions are made between Christmas and New Year. Absolutely, they might not be yeah. acted on but they're made. Yeah, I think the the, the, the ball is, is, is started rolling I yeah. suppose early in January and as you say you might not see People might not actually get into a new home yeah. or, or get involved in the bidding proce- process until February or March, mm. but decision is made. And, and now's the point from our perspective that we're seeing a lot of customers coming in, of looking course. to see what could they buy, what's what's available, how much could they qualify for, and all the, the typical first-time buyer and, and mover questions. Okay, well, look, let's start right at the beginning. So decision is made. People are looking for a new home, whether it's a first-time buyer or maybe somebody who is looking to trade up or down. So from a mortgage point of view, what's the first step they should be taking? I think the, the obvious one is come in and, and talk to somebody because I, I, I think that there's a huge amount of information out there, but it's still the best thing is to, to sit down and talk to an expert. So I, I think that one of the things that we've seen in, in the market actually and in, in our customers' behaviour is they want different options. So they want to be able to talk to us online. They want to be able to talk to us face-to-face um, or, or to, to meet us outside of our of working hours. So we're able to fac- facilitate all of those. Okay. But what it means for the customer is they get to get in, they get some sense early on of what's their budget. So how much could they qualify for? What's realistic for them? And from our perspective, then it, it gives us a, a, an idea as to uh, what type of a home they may be looking for and we could help and how we could help and support them as well. So, and Barry, how long have you been working in mortgages? So uh, working in mortgages about 15 years. Uh, OK, so, so you were there pre-crash? I was there pre-crash, the crash, uh, during and crash and out the other side. And well. out the other side. Yeah. So actually... Uh, this is something I'm always interested in. Mm. It's something I ask estate agents about as well. You know, it's, it's consumer behaviour. Yeah. I'm interested when consumers come in to you inquiring about a mortgage, you know, compared to maybe the consumers of 15 years ago, how informed are they? I actually think they're much better informed. And, yeah. and, and I suppose the fact that there's access to so much information online now mm-hmm. has made a real difference. So I, I also think, Carol, the, the days of somebody coming in almost cap in hand are, are probably gone thankfully because mm-hmm. I think you have an educated customer base we have customers coming in they have a, a certain amount of knowledge 
um, and and have they've some sense of what they want, yeah. uh, which which is definitely um, a change. The best example I would give is most of our customers know that they can get three and a half times the the income, but mm-hmm. they're also aware of the central bank limits and how could they get asking how could they get an exception. So the type of questions we get asked are much more detailed than they might have been 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, you know, sometimes applying for a mortgage can be a bit like a marathon and you don't want to turn up on the day unprepared. So I think one of the things I've seen, particularly from a first-time buyer perspective, is that um, first-time buyers are terribly well prepared. You know, as in, they're not deciding to get a mortgage. They're spending six months training, getting their finances fit. And before they make that application. And one of the things we love to see is someone coming in and saying, I'm not, don't think I'm ready right now, but what can I do yeah. to get ready? And that's great. That's a great conversation for us to have because we'll sit you down and talk through maybe simple things like how making sure you get your savings up to scratch. And and one important thing, I think, for, particularly for our first time buyers is to bear in mind that we're, when we're looking and, and assessing a, a customer's affordability, we're looking at their the behaviour on their bank statements. So mm-hmm. it's making sure that in the, the the months leading up to application, that they actually have really good bank statements. That there you can see evidence of saving. That it's kind of clear they've avoided referral charges or anything mm-hmm. like that. So we get a lot of customers that will come in looking for that sort yeah. of a steer, and that we're able to keep with them on the journey then over the next uh, six months or a year. Okay. In terms of behaviours to avoid, I remember, you know, 15, 16 years ago when I was getting my first mortgage, it was things like um, not making cash withdrawals late at night at the weekends. What's the what's the, I, what's the modern equivalent yeah, of that? Yeah, I, I think, so So some of the myths that are out there, we yeah. won't overanalyze yeah, the, the yeah. bank statements uh, to, to the extent of that. Uh, one of the things that, that was out a couple of years ago was, you know, that, that your average millennial would be we'd be scrutinising to see how much they spent on avocados and, <laughs> and cappuccinos. It, it's not that bad. It really isn't. Well, actually, uh, I recommend everybody take a look at how much <laughs> they're spending on cappuccinos. <laughs> There's probably a savings there to be made. But uh, what what are the big no-nos? You know, we read a lot about um, online gambling. Yeah. So... So there's a difference, I suppose, between... So when we talk about something like online gambling, the difference between somebody putting 10 euro on at Cheltenham uh, or, you know, the occasional uh, bet, that's absolutely fine. What you don't want to see is a pattern of of any sort of dysfunction in it. Um, In terms of the rest of it, uh, of the bank statement piece, we need to see that you can afford the repayment. So, And that might sound very simplistic, but... We want to see. So sometimes you can get people coming in, and and uh, they want to go from a point where maybe they've been saving a very small amount, and then the mortgage that they're taking on is quite substantial. So either. But, but what through, if they've been paying rent at the same time? And this, does that count towards? And this is absolutely a key part of it. Rent the rental and. We're in South Dublin, so this is a, mm. is, is something that's crucial. A lot of our customers are paying really high rents, and that proves repayment capacity. Mm-hmm. So one of the things to make sure on your bank statements is that we can clearly see your rent going out. Mm-hmm. <coughs> but r- if rent going out, if they've managed to amass savings sufficient for oh, yeah. a 10% deposit for first-time buyers or 20% for other buyers, if they've managed to uh, to amass that in savings while paying South Dublin rents, that is that, that, that is phenomenal. They're definitely capacity. showing well capacity. And exactly. And, and the likelihood is that if they are renting in South Dublin, 
they have repayment capacity that that um, that the mortgage repayment tends to be less than what they're paying in rental income. Oh, and that doesn't cases. surprise me yeah. at all. You know, we're hearing a lot as well about um, first-time buyers returning to, you know, their, their family homes for a period of maybe a year or six months or whatever it is in order to save have you any have you any data on this? You know, can you see how many of your applications or what proportion of your applications um, for first time buyers are actually coming from people who are not Moved renting? On. Yeah, I, 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 or not paying rent, whether they're staying with a family member or something like that. Without putting a percentage on it, we can definitely see a pattern of it. Uh, so it is and, happening. And what it what what it tends to be is, you might have somebody who has proven the repayment capacity through the rent but is struggling to make the 10%. Mm -hmm. And we can see that the repayment capacity is there and that they manage their finances very, very well. And in or But in order to actually accumulate the, the, the 10% deposit part of it, they need to, to move home yeah. for a period of time to to uh, to get to uh, to get to a point where they can, can go on the mortgage journey. Is that somebody that you might consider then, say, for these coveted exemptions? Yes, well, our, our, our criteria actually on exemptions are relatively clear-cut. So we focus on the net disposable income that each customer has. So I suppose we look at, at their, their income and with their income, we will take in their basic income. We take a percentage of bonus. In, in some cases, we'll take a percentage of overtime if it's proven and, and consistent. Um, so we look at that on, on one side of the page and essentially on the other side of the page, it is their mortgage repayment. We'll stress it just to make sure that if mortgage rates went up, that they still have that affordability. Uh, what what's the what is the figure that you're that you're stress testing to now? Can so we you say? will we will generally add two percent okay. to the the existing mortgage repayment. So it, it it just allows for that little bit of leeway mm-hmm. that if, if if rates went up, that somebody is still able to afford it. Um, and of course, rates are going in the opposite direction. Th- th- we we are absolutely in a very benign interest rate environment at the moment, so it shouldn't be of major concern. But I suppose this is also a twenty five or thirty year commitment. For, for people yeah. so it gives that us that bit of comfort also on that side of the page then you, we were, we were looking at if they have personal loans or a regular credit card repayment we'll need to factor that in um, and and ultimately that will arrive will arrive then at a net disposable income figure if that income figure is high that shows that they have capacity to take on more than three and a half times their income um, and that's probably it probably eliminates a lot of the mystery in that Essentially, mm. for exceptions, we're, we and all the other banks are are giving those exceptions to people that have the affordability for it. Okay. Uh, um, last year, one of the things we covered on the show here last year was that um, I think by March or April, Charlie Weston and the Independent ran a piece to say that the exemptions for the entire year had been used up. And that was in March or April. And then, you know, maybe in September, we had a mortgage broker in here saying, nope, still exemptions available. So... What is the situation? I mean, can you look back on 2019 and say AIB as a bank used all the exemptions available to it? We did. And and I suppose one of our challenges internally is always to make to make sure that that, those exemptions are spread out over the the year in the right way. And uh, we we don't ever hit a point where in March we don't have any. But is there a situation because approval and principles, I mean, they're running off what, six months now? Well, well, we do 12 months. Up to 12 months. So can somebody lock in an exemption for 12 months and not use it? They can. So if you have an exception, and not all banks are the same, but with us, we've taken the view that, first of all, we were six months for an approval. Mm -hmm. But... 
I think what has happened, it, it's taken people longer to find a home. And that of course, kind of yeah. links into the supply challenge that mm. we have. And for a customer starting off, uh, to put them on a clock of six months, it felt unfair. So yeah. we, we widened that to 12 months. It gives them a reasonable amount of time. The other thing is they hold that exception for the 12 month duration. The positives of that is it, it allows them that time and space. The negatives, as you've rightly hinted at there, it does lock in that on our books for if, the and if they months. don't use it, if they, if they yeah. go with another mortgage or yeah, no, we, we would check in with them on a fairly regular basis yeah. to make sure that that that, that, that they have If they've gone elsewhere, then that it comes back. That comes back to us. Yeah. Okay. So look, I, I suppose in terms of the rates, where are we at the moment um, for fixed rates? So we're in a, we're in a, a quite a low interest rate environment at the moment. Uh, typical first time buyer mortgage. Typical first time buyer mortgage for us. Uh, we offer actually our, our kind of latest uh, good news is uh, we've launched before Christmas a green mortgage uh, at two and a half percent for a five year fixed term. I was reading about this. Can you actually explain what exactly that is or what's the criteria? Yeah, so the criteria are relatively straightforward. Um, so that the, the applies to both existing customers, but also our new customers. And the customer needs to, to just produce for us the, the bearer cert, the energy rating, uh, that, that, that the energy rating for that home is B3 or above. So it kind of fits with AIB's overall sustainability agenda. But what we're finding as well is for a lot of first-time buyers, it's particularly useful because... If they're buying new homes, almost every new home that's been built over the last few years will absolutely fly through that criteria. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 something we're getting a huge amount of interest in. And that rate again is? Two and a half. Okay. And how does that compare with your uh, fixed and variable rates at the moment? So uh, we've the rest of our fixed rates are kind of 2.85, 3.15 at variable. We'll go down to 2.75 depending okay. on your loan to value. Okay, that's an interesting one. So earlier today, I was having a conversation with um, an estate agency that, you know, is a hybrid offering online and um, traditional. And, you know, two of the two of the issues that they have at the moment in terms of digitizing the whole process of buying and selling property, you know, uh, one is certainly the conveyancing and the slow adoption of of uh, digital technology or technology to innovate um, and speed up the conveyancing process. The other was around the mortgages because we've seen such a huge, um, huge progress made on the fintech side in Ireland. You know, we have amazing technology here and it's not all being used. Um, So where, where... Uh, where is AIB? That's perhaps that's an unfair question, but you know what? What can you tell so, us about ad, um, adoption rates of, of technology yeah, within? So, so again, uh, and and this is a reaction to to customer behaviour as well, and and customer feedback is we've changed uh, the way we're doing business in in terms of the face to face meeting. Initially, what we're trying to do as much of is. Uh, and this is quite, I suppose it's a bit of a bank word, do as much omni-channel business in the sense that there are customers that want to do part of their mortgage journey face-to-face and meet us, but actually they want to be able to track the mortgage online. They want okay. to be able to upload their documentation at home. Uh, they want to be able to to, to check uh, some of the detail online. So what we've done, actually, we've we've introduced um, our mortgage, it's called our Mortgage Express offering. So at the moment, we're looking at about six, seven out of 10 customers can go on this journey. We give, we can give them an, an approval at the first meeting, subject to cert, having certain yeah. documentation. Um, and it 
it, it holds as, as every other approval does for 12 months. But then from that point onwards, as well as the, the person they were dealing with initially, they can upload documentation, they track it on an app, uh, they, they have a, um, a question and answer feature on it. So it probably... The question and answer feature, is that... Uh, do you use chatbots so, so or... They're, so they're supported by our own in-house team uh, that will um, that that'll contact them, them through the app. Uh, so what it does is, I suppose, it gives us, from our perspective, it probably meets that customer need of the modern customer in their 20s and 30s. A lot of their, their day-to-day dealings are on a smartphone. Yeah. Um, they don't necessarily want to trail into a branch every time they want and to they talk de- to they us. They don't even want to pick up a phone. I mean, <laughs> yeah. we're talking about a, a, an on-demand generation. They expect information on demand. But actually, that speeds up everything because it Huge. works both ways. It means that uh, consumers are making fast decisions about what mortgage product they're going to use. You know, they're making fast decisions too. This is so, it, yeah. um, and And I think that if we're going to increase efficiency around property and property transactions it has to be the full chain it does and I, and I think um, what we're finding is I don't think you could have the whole mortgage journey done through the app I think cust- customers are saying to us it's nice to have you guys there to talk to face to face and mm-hmm. to ask some of the initial questions but really once we've the initial meeting done mm-hmm. we're happy enough to, 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 to use the technology after that Yeah. Uh, so it's great to be able to blend the two and I think that's probably the future for all aspects of the property chain Okay. So legal yeah. and estate agent Actually I, I wasn't aware of that technology coming out but actually that, that's great to see so we might we might look into that and have a further discussion about that at another time in a prop tech context so before we let you go have you any final advice for home buyers whether they're first time buyers or those trading up or down over the next couple of months come and talk I think that's it's, it is as simple as that I think there is there's, well there's lots of information out there nothing beats sitting down and and, and chatting through your own individual circumstances and you know we're we're happy to talk to you and, uh, and and answer any questions you have that's great Barry thank you so much for being with us Thanks today that was Barry Cull Head of Homes in South Dublin for AIB after the break we'll be joined by David Rouse Multi-Units Development Advisor for the Housing Agency stay tuned Broadcasting to South Dublin on 93.9 this is Dublin South FM and you're welcome back to Property Matters here in Dublin South FM with myself, Carol Tallon. You can contact us on Twitter at iPropertyRadio or email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. As mentioned before the break in studio with us now, we're joined by David Rouse, multi-unit development advisor for the housing agency. David, you're very welcome back to the show. Happy Thank New Year to you. Happy New Year, Carol. It's great to be back here again. Thank you very much for it the invitation. It is, and, and we're, we're into year two. So um, last year was a busy year for us and indeed for the housing agency. So you might just do a quick recap for people listening Absolutely, about yeah. what the housing agency does. No problem at all. Thanks, thanks, Carol. We work with the Department of Housing, uh, local councils, approved housing bodies and others in the uh, housing sector. Uh, we're an independent organisation, but under the remitter under the aegis of the Department of Housing and we deal I suppose with um, uh, deal with the pyrite remediation situation where um, policy uh, analysis and uh, research centre and uh, support to, to local authorities in terms of procurement and, and other similar services. Very good and 
you're here tonight to talk to us about a series of events that are taking place around the country. So, um, obviously, I mentioned there that you're involved with the multi-unit developments. So, you might just talk to us a little bit about that, these events. That's right, yeah. The, the context for this really is, I suppose, uh, coming out of the report that we commissioned with Cluid Housing last year and which you were kind enough to discuss uh, with us um, in one of your programmes uh, back in the uh, in the autumn. Of course, and I, that's available on your website, it that is report. Indeed, yes, yeah, Where absolutely. can people link to that? Yeah, housing you'll find it you'll find it in our publication section there okay. and out of that uh, report and out of some work we've been doing otherwise we've uh, found um, I suppose a demand for knowledge and information in the multi-unit development sector and in particular the owners management companies of uh, of these estates so just to recap I suppose for people mm-hmm. who may not be familiar owners management companies are um, the uh, entities that control the common areas and common spaces in apartment blocks so the lifts the lobbies the gardens and all the rest of it so it's and very important to point out here that actually the directors are the homeowners themselves. Absolutely, yes. They're volunteer directors who who, who are uh, homeowners. They could be owner-occupiers or they could could be uh, landlords. And they are required really to um, make sure that the services to the estate are robust, that the sinking fund has been set up and that service charges have been collected and so on. So it requires a certain skill set, even though, as I say, the the individuals, the directors are volunteers and lay people. They do have to have a certain level of information and knowledge out there. And that's where we're dipping our toe into into the water if you like to provide some resources for them and yeah. that's what our schedule of uh, information outreach events over the next couple of months is, uh, is is intended to do of course and it's not just apartment blocks obviously it's housing developments as well i that, think that's right yeah um certainly owners management companies got a bit of a bad rap during the crash where we were dealing with quite a chaotic yeah. environment yeah. so over the last number of years Obviously, we've seen legislation and we've seen policies to support that legislation. So we're coming to the end of a lot of these legacy problems that might have caused um, untold conveyancing hassles for people. Um, So now now that we're maybe over the more chaotic side Mm. of it, you know, what are the primary functions? of these um, OMCs? The primary functions is to ensure that the communities are sustainable in terms of uh, being nice places to live and that the finances are there to support the repair and maintenance of the, of the, uh, of the common areas and of the gardens and landscaped areas and car parks and so on and that the, uh, the replacement of essential plant and machinery and um, common facilities uh, is provided for from a financial point of view in the, in the long run. So, you know, a lot of apartment blocks have... Uh, large uh, numbers of lifts in them and eventually at some stage those lifts are going to become dilapidated and going to be replaced and that mm-hmm. takes a lot of money so people need to be aware that they have to build up sinking funds to to, to provide for that and you know the directors of owners management companies are, are volunteers they're not necessarily uh, equipped with the, all the skills that would point them in the right direction of what to do um, what we're there to do in these uh, training sessions is to give them some signposts and give them some directions and, and, and where the resources are in, in the different state agencies and beyond. Okay, and um, of course, while we're talking about the role of volunteer directors, it's important to point out that most OMCs would actually employ a property manager. They would, absolutely. We're, so, we're, not, we're not there to sort of step 
step into the, yeah. the, the role there. There are p- plenty of, of, of hardy professionals in the quantity surveying and uh, auctioneering and valuation um, uh, organisations and professions to, to provide the services to OMCs. But equally... Uh, but they need certain, to be paid. They do need to be... Needs ab- to be gathered. Absolutely. And it's in everyone's interests, yeah. both from a public housing point of view, a private housing point of view, that owners management companies are, are well run. So uh, local authorities, uh, approved housing bodies and private individuals all have an interest in making sure that OMCs work well. They're the glue really that holds together um, a good estate where there are common areas, where there are shared services and shared spaces. And if we don't get this right, as our as our report uh, reflected last year, it's really not going to, um, it's not going to make for pleasant places to live. We also have to keep in mind that national planning policies really are directed at higher density developments around mm-hmm. the country. And that's not going to take the form of three bedroom semi-Ds, unfortunately. It is it is going to take um, uh, the, the form of uh, apartment developments or, you know, duplex estates and so on. Um, and invariably, they will have an owner's management company to to run the common areas. There are about eight or, eight or 9,000 OMCs in the country at the moment, and they have at least two, three, maybe up to a dozen directors each. So mm-hmm. there's a large population of, of uh, volunteer directors out there that, you know, have a, have a spectrum of skills and we're there to really, I suppose, as I say, point them in, in the right direction and give them the, the signposts yeah. of where to go. Um, on the ground, mm-hmm. can you see the difference between um, those developments that might be primarily investor-owned mm-hmm. or the, the units might be primarily investor-owned as opposed to owner-occupied? You know, is there is there a difference on the ground? Like, are investors getting involved? I suppose it's it's fair to say that uh, the, the people most immediately concerned with the quality of an estate are those who live there. Mm. So essentially, the owner occupier cohort and the numbers if we if they're have, the minority mm, in a development, well, that they, they can get certainly are. Yeah, the numbers we have is that about uh, only about twenty percent of apartments are owner occupied. Mm-hmm. The remaining eighty uh, percent, uh, roughly sixty percent, is private rented accommodation, and the remaining twenty percent is social or public uh, accommodation. And do we have any stats on the engagement levels um, of the owners, the investor owners? Not yet, but that's something that the housing agency might might un- 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 undertake uh, at, a, at a later time, building yeah. on the research that we did last year into the uh, into the sector, without a doubt. It's, it'd be worthwhile yeah. understanding that. Well, I think anecdotally, you know, w- we would we would know that owner-occupiers take the lead because Absolutely. obviously they're most motivated. Yes, yeah. But that's quite a short-term view given that um, the property is an investment and an investment Without is only as good as, as yeah. it is growing and, and the area is, yeah. is maintained. Yeah. The, the ideal owner's management company would have a, a number of owner-occupiers, a number of landlords, perhaps an institutional landlord represented, a, a private, as they say, mom and pop investor yeah. um, landlord. If there's a, an approved housing body, so so uh, one of the social housing associations. I'd they, imagine they'd be very involved. Yeah, they should have a representative ideally on the board as well yeah. because as I say, it's in everyone's interest to make sure that the, the, the car is pointing in the right direction and that mm-hmm. it's well fueled and, and, and well serviced and, and yeah. that the key components are going to be replaced in the in the long run to draw that to draw that, that there'll analogy. be money to yeah, replace absolutely. those key components. Yeah, without a doubt. Okay, and the training, where are the training sessions happening? Well, we have a, a number of them over the next uh, three months or so. The first one uh, is tomorrow night. Uh, that's Wednesday the 15th in the Crown Plaza in Blanchardstown. That's uh, pretty much booked up at this stage. Um, okay. The next few are Wednesday 
the 29th of January in the Red Cow Morn Hotel in Dublin, Wednesday the 5th of February in the Clayton Hotel in Dublin Airport, the 12th of February in Lachlan Bridge in Carlow, the 19th of February in Clayton Silver Springs Hotel in Cork, 26th of Feb in Castle Troy Park Hotel in Limerick, 4th of March Talbot Hotel in Stillorgan, lots of places still available there, and the 25th of March in the Clayton Hotel in Sligo. So we have a large regional spread across the country. And are these free to attend? They are absolutely free to attend, but we'd ask that people would register via Eventbrite um, and contact us. You can, you can. Uh, full details are on our on our website, um, and there's a cup of tea and coffee for people when they when they come along. They might be coming from work. Crucially, these are evening events, mm-hmm. so it's for it's catering for people who are volunteers who are doing something else in their in their job in the or have other commitments in the daytime. They start at six forty-five, so as I say, we'll have a cup of tea for people and we'll kick off at seven. We'll have about forty-five minutes an hour presentation from the agency itself on the various resources um, available for directors. We'll put some context um, around uh, legislation. We'll explain little bits about the Multi-Unit Development Act. We'll touch on company law principles. We'll talk about complaints processes, either complaints around corporate governance or the management agent um, or, uh, or or other aspects. And uh, we'll finish up then with uh, a question and answer session so people are free to uh, to, to think on what, what issues they might like to raise at the end. And uh, Absolutely. Okay, well, just um, to let people know that those dates have been uploaded to the Property District website and I'm sure they're available on the housing.ie website. They are indeed or if you just uh, check check out uh, under OMC in Eventbrite you'll, you'll find them all as well. Okay, and so let's delve a little bit deeper mm. into the role of volunteer directors mm-hmm. because, look, people, while they might be concerned about their homes, the, the reality is people are busier, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's um, young families, whether it's caring for people, managing their jobs and and uh, family commitments. You know, I suppose people would be nervous about the, the time and the commitment required. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, do you do you have a breakdown of what's expected yeah. of a volunteer director? Well, well, I've, I've been a, a director of my own owner's management company for nearly 10 years at this stage. And I suppose the key things really are to have uh, some awareness of company law and company law principles because you are ultimately a director of, of a company. Now, you know... Will you be doing providing some training on this? Uh, we, we, as I say, in, in the space of an hour, we couldn't possibly get into the detail that we'd like to. So this yeah. is a sort of a signposts, key principles, key policies. This which you want to know and that's where you can find uh, it. Exactly, yeah. The, 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 the concepts and the, and, and the uh, initial principles. Um, but certainly down the road we might get into... Uh, Delve deeper into the into the company law or regulation side of uh, side of things as well. We're anxious, I suppose, to make sure that people know that there are resources out there for for volunteer and, directors and help. And help, yeah, because pe- pe- people some people are overwhelmed by the prospect of of being a director of an owners management company. And we're there to say, you know, with uh, good colleagues on a board. So, like any committee or any residents mm. association, if you have four or five good people who are well intentioned, uh, understand the principles uh, with the with the best best interests of their estate and of their neighbours at heart, then you can go a long way, guided by good professionals, uh, a good estate manager, mm-hmm. a good solicitor for the for the uh, estate if there are legal issues to be uh, to be dealt with, and a good accountant as well who's going to you know do the books and, and look after it. So we'll, we'll tell them a little bit about each of those things. Well, and the fact that all directors are living there themselves, there's a shared interest, there's a shared oh. there's a shared agenda there. Absolutely. Um, in terms of, for example, um, one of the big roles would be to 
to set fees, annual Absolutely. fees for the yeah. year, yeah. and then of course to collect those fees. Yeah. Now I know there was some pretty poor statistics out last year about um, the level of of management fees that go unpaid. Yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah, do you yeah. have up-to-date stats on those? Well, what what what, what we're looking at, I suppose, the research that that uh, that we undertook or that was t- undertaken on our behalf last year indicated that you know a lot of uh, a large number of owners management companies have um, have debtors of up to half their turnover. So if that was a commercial business, you know, it would be dead in the morning. So what we need to focus on is really setting good debt collection policies and sticking to them. And really, it's about engaging a good management agent and if needs be a good solicitor to put in place the paperwork uh, to support uh, good debt collection policies and to avoid situations where people are running into delinquency. So if you want to set a you know a schedule of, of payments and installment arrangement or post-dated checks anything like that to allow people to, to be in good standing with their service charge debt and then taking on the next step around the sinking fund provision and again dealing with your management agent understanding it if you don't even if you don't know the answers at least understanding the questions to pose to your management agent and being able to take advice from them being able to challenge that advice as well because there mm-hmm. can always be downsides and risks and uh, other issues to, 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 to take on board taking into account the, the whole estate and, and all the issues that, that are there um, so with the, with the support of good professionals uh, a collegiate board of, of directors people well intentioned and a state can, 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 can do well and can thrive that's that's what we'd like to see yeah. the long title of our organisation of the housing agency is the housing and sustainable communities uh, agency and that's where this sustainability comes into play Absolutely. We, need, and we need to see that in yeah. the states and you referenced there um, the extensive body of work that was done last year by the housing agency and and Clued that's and right. carried out by Paul Mooney of that's Benchmark it, yeah, Property so there was a huge body of work it was a huge undertaking and there were a number of really key recommendations made in that there were have, yeah. have they moved on at all what was the next yeah. step to that certainly one of the recommendations was director training and mm-hmm. uh, we have was that a, to make it mandatory it was to make it mandatory um, whether that's you know possible and, and the other recommendations are matters for people at a political level but mm-hmm. certainly from our our perspective we have a training function in respect of um, for for uh, for people in approved housing bodies and in local authorities and equally in the in the uh, in the social and public uh, housing sphere and equally uh, the, the training function can touch and support on the private side of things as well so we're making mm-hmm. we're making some initial progress on that particular aspect other recommendations of the report were around you know deeper regulation or or, or wider regulation of OMCs um, themselves how, how have those recommendations been received well certainly the uh, minister was very supportive at the uh, report launch and I know there's been uh, communication um, at some departmental level perhaps uh, but equally we're now in a in a situation of I suppose what they call PERDA where where um, policy changes are are, are put I suppose in the deep freezer while our election is, is underway and so on so we have to be conscious of, of that as well but uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of scope for progress even possibly outside of legislation and regulation and this is this is at least one step in that But in the that training and, and informing yeah, people and, of course and in, in the meantime we've put a lot of resources on our own website uh, that people can access so we have a huge frequently asked questions section mm-hmm. dealing with company law company secretarial um, matters consumer protection issues regulation issues in terms 
terms of property management agents. So we've taken steps in the meantime to put some resources behind this and that's what I'm there for as well. We mm-hmm. have a, a contact help point. Our, uh, our email address is mudmud at housingagency.ie. If people want to get in touch with queries or questions, we'd be delighted to, 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 to point them in the right direction. As I say, we're not there to replace the services of professionals in the sector, management agents and solicitors, but we are there to provide maybe an independent signpost to people if they want to know where to go to get to get particular pieces of information. Okay, very good. And really what I'd like to what we'd like to see is in, in 2020, you know, you mentioned there your work with the approved housing bodies. Mm. We've seen the approved housing bodies scale up massively. Hugely, you know, yeah. in, in the Sunday papers last weekend, uh, to a housing delivered more than a thousand um, social homes, a thousand social homes to the market over 2019. And I think that was the single largest annual delivery by any organisation. Um, sounds about right. And yeah. so that's phenomenal. There's gearing up there. So surely we're at the point where the collaboration can be between um, the private communities, social housing and private and private investors as part of the same organisation. Without a doubt. And the point is um, it borne out by the fact that Cluid Housing were co-sponsors of the report on the sector and they mm-hmm. have, I think, seven or 8,000 uh, homes around the country and a huge amount of stock in, an apart- in apartment developments and they have, have an involvement in, you know, several dozen uh, owners management companies and that's why they got uh, behind it. But I think I'd perhaps like to sort of wrap up by saying the information on the on the sessions is there on our website. We're anxious that people... Housing.ie. Uh, housing.ie. We're anxious that people uh, reach out. We're trying to put some resources behind the sector and we We'd, we'd welcome their participation. Thank you so much. That was David Rouse, multi-unit development advisor for the Housing Agency. David, thank you so much for joining us. After the break, our final guest for today is John Egan, CEO of BIM Launcher. Stay tuned. Your community radio for South Dublin. This is Dublin South FM. Now, welcome back to Property Matters here on Dublin South FM with myself, Carol Tallon. As mentioned before the break, our final guest for tonight is John Egan, CEO of BIM Launcher. John, you're very welcome. So, BIM is something that we've covered a lot on the show. We we try to dedicate, you know, at least one third of the show every week to prop tech and emerging technology for the construction and and planning sectors. So, BIM Launcher is something I was very excited to hear about. Tell me a little bit about the business. Okay, so firstly, thanks for having me. I was delighted to get the invitation. Um, so BIM is an acronym that stands for Building Information Modeling, and it's essentially the digitization of the construction process. So the various different um, stakeholders that's engaged in the construction process will use many different specialized tools on a, on a given project. Um, they're... A client will typically have a master project management information system. A contractor will have another project management information system. Tier 1 contractor would also have their own project. So everyone has their own management systems. And they're working um, collaboratively on developments of different pieces of the design, um, whatever it may be throughout the life cycle in these systems. But these systems are... You know, they're 
um, disintegrated so the information doesn't flow between them. So what you have is team members spending a lot of time moving data between the systems and trying to keep them up to sync manually. Which doesn't make sense at all. No, so it's very time consuming. Um, the, you know, 75% of them report that it has a medium to high impact on their on their actual productivity. And that's um, so obviously, you know, and, and the other side of that is that these project management systems are increasing in popularity. So there's, you know, like 90% um, of large construction projects are actually engaging with these. Um, are they Irish statistics? No, they'd be international. Okay. Um, so, would you would you hazard a guess as to where Irish companies might sit in well, that? It, it all depends on the size of the company, okay. and it seems to be that the biggest contractors, mention um, the bigger project and the bigger risk, is actually engaging with the um, the higher tech project management information systems. Does that Whereas, tend to be client led? Yeah, 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 exactly. So for a client, it minimizes the risk. That's how they see it. So they're better able to manage and engage um, with the different stakeholders and um, obviously be able to react um, better as as time goes on in the project mm-hmm. um, to any, um, you know, if the schedule's gone out of um, um, out of sync with what it, what it should have been. Um, yeah. so, so where does BIM Launcher f- sit with yeah. that? So BIM Launcher is a technology platform that helps information flow between these um, project management solutions. Almost like a translation tool. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, so it's an automated system okay. that is able to that's set up in advance of the project, um, and regardless of the project management information systems that are actually being used on the project, it's configured in advance of the project, and it runs in the background and automatically syncs all the information between the different systems um, in real time. So does that mean, and sorry, now my, my knowledge on this would be massively limited. So does that mean that each stakeholder can continue to use the pla- or the, the interface they're used to? Yes. But they're, they're getting access to the same information? Yes. So with the way that it's done today, they exchange this information manually, which means they mm-hmm. download files, upload files, um, they, you know, use file set, file sharing um, services like Dropbox, FTP mm. servers, uh, and various different um, systems like that. Um, but they can never be sure about the information that they're viewing. So, as in, is it the most recent? Exactly. Or? So when they can't trust in the um, in in the project information, they need to go into the other systems, make requests for information to the various different st- stakeholders, and ensure that that information is actually, in fact, the latest information, which can be costly if they don't actually um, if they don't have the latest information to hand. Okay, um, John, what's your background? Yeah, so um, I actually. Um, I suppose this is my opportunity to plug my father's company. So I worked for him for five years uh, as a sub subcontracting company, a floor screening subcontracting company. Uh, Egan What's screening. the name of the company before e- your father gets out to you? <laughs> Egan Screeding. Um, so when Where the is d- that based? Uh, so it's in Galway, um, okay. Connacht generally. Um, I do some work in uh, Dublin. And, Very um, good. Yeah, so... Uh, when the downturn came in 2008, I decided I'd always enjoyed buildings. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so I decided to go and study architecture. And when I started studying architecture, I got 
into the really into the discipline of computational design, which was essentially um, rather than going through this um, design pro- traditional design process that architect would go through, I was trying to describe the schema of the building in the computer and a- actually getting the computer to generate mm-hmm. um, my designs. Um, I also got into building information modeling at quite a young age. Um, so at second year in university, I, I was all hands-on with all the BIM authoring tools. I was teaching them to my year. Um, and then in, the, in that summer, I got an internship with Horley, um, a multinational engineering company. Um, and I started working on the, improving their um, automations for within their internal workflows. Um, so developing plugins for different softwares. But you were developing those. You weren't you weren't introducing them into the company, you were actually developing them for the company. So it was a very much so uh, hands-on procurement process within the company. So we were actually working tightly with the actual teams that would be using the tools. And on the other hand, I was working with the software development teams to actually um, to build and deliver the solutions to the teams and, and uh, managing that iterative feedback loop until we actually uh, got the solution that they required. Um, that, that sounds like... A, that sounds like um, a significant work for an intern coming in. I mean, was that the yeah. brief you had coming in or yeah. was this an opportunity you saw when you got in? Well, it was kind of that the BIM and computational design was kind of emerging. Um, so like this was, say, five, six years ago um, when it was really in its uh, infancy. Um, and I came in, I was really enthusiastic, you know, that yeah. I, like I, this is what I did. Like in my class was designing, you know, as the lecturers taught design, I was in the computer labs from morning till night trying to teach myself this computational design. So I think that um, in a way they gave me the opportunity to come in and they just said, look, you're R&D. Um, and when they seen it working, uh, that we were actually building valuable solutions for the company, um, they really, yeah, they they decided to keep me on uh, for the year, uh, year and a half. So I dropped my university final year down to two or three two days a week um, and worked for Horley three days a week. So I did a total of a year and a half in mm-hmm. Horley and then um, I set up my own uh, BIM consultancy with uh, an old friend um, and we got introduced to building these project management information systems from scratch. So what year was that when BIM Launcher came So BIM about? Launcher came back about 2017. So BIM Script, which was the first consultancy, was 2014. Um, and that's where we started building the, the project management information systems. In 2014, systems. Yeah. you know, have you any idea what the BIM adoption rates would have been in Ireland? In, not in Ireland. I was in England okay. um, all this time. So it was, you know, England seemed to be a lot more, well, they are more, le- they are leaders, the, you know, global leaders. Um, from would, the, would you consider the UK to be global leaders I would, yeah, in BIM? I would, yeah. Um, okay, and I, I think where, does Ireland, where does Ireland sit in relation to the UK market? Well, uh, Ireland um, seems to be following um, slowly behind. I mean, in 2016, they obviously standardised the use of BIM on government, mm. pro- government projects in the UK. But before that, they had the frameworks in place, the working groups in place to actually procure this framework. When I came back to Ireland in 2018, my first introduction was this, actually a CETA conference mm-hmm. in Galway where they were talking about this roadmap to introduce BIM. And actually, just because you've mentioned CETA,
CETA, it's really important in this context yeah. to point out that uh, CETA, that's the Construction IT Alliance, uh, CETA, C-I-T-A dot I-E. They actually have two events coming up on digital transformation and a tech trend series. So I recommend mm-hmm. anybody who is interested in the space because they were also the organisation behind the BIM gathering. So if anybody's interested in the space and further information, go on to the CETA website. That's Construction IT Alliance. But go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Um, we, it's important to get that plug in because actually one of the things we found is that um, as we move ahead with the technology and I know we're comparing the UK market to Ireland um, we de- we also don't want to give the impression that actually anybody who hasn't already adopted has in some way been left behind because we know that the adoption rates even today are still low um, you know actually yeah. we, we had a guest in here before the the Christmas break and um, we were trying to figure out, you know, BIM adoption rates generally in Ireland, are they somewhere between 15, 16, 17 percent, somewhere around there? You know, would you have any would you have any opinion on that? I won't have any more. Yeah, <laughs> well, like, look, we, we think they're somewhere around there. But, mm. you know, today, how far behind, say, the UK, you know, look, well, I, you describe Ireland as a there's no there's no shame in being a follower if you're going to be a fast follower, but you don't want to be a slow follower. <laughs> um I mean, like, generally the technologies that were around in 2014, 2015, they were the same project management solutions that um, are around today. Um, They generally have a couple of more features, but they're still marketing to the same points. You know, they're still providing the same value and the same, um, uh, for the same user cases. you know, I don't. I don't think. Yeah, as a follower, I don't think that it's any disadvantage. I mean, there's um, international standards that can be adopted now. Um, so there's ISO 19650, and what that has actually brought on is a whole whole load of other um, standards initiatives to help solve the problems that have been kind of uh, burdening the use of BIM over the last, say, five years. So. Like we are moving as fast as ever um, in terms of um, uh, BIM adoption globally. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's driven by all sorts of things like housing shortages, uh, you know, homelessness, all the other the other things that um, is actually driving um, development. Um, mm. Yeah. Um, w- one of the things, you know, um, when we discussed this in advance, you know, one of the things you spoke about was this need to... Um, to stop using valuable human or uh, valuable project human resources as a proxy for orchestrating project data, you know, what what ex- explain explain to me, you know, what are companies doing now that we need to focus on changing? Yeah, so at the moment, um, companies are exchanging information between their systems manually, mm-hmm. um, and they are focusing on. So, so what what's entailed here is that, like, typically an intern or you know a document controller would sit down and they would, you know, go through the latest documents in each system and then manually download them and upload them into whatever other system. So this goes back to the client owning the master system and then the contractors working through their own systems. Um, so yeah, the, I mean you've you've someone um, someone in the middle actually downloading and uploading and trying to keep track of metadata, trying to keep keep track of different revisions, and what's happening there is that 
you have a disconnect between the contractors and client systems where the metadata belong to each of the documents that, that might have been um, carefully um, assigned at the earlier stages of the project is actually dropping off um, as, we, as we move through the project. So what, what that does is affects our ability to, um, uh, to produce what's called the golden thread, um, which is this um, information carry-on from, you know, pre- or concept through to delivery and beyond so that like every piece of I suppose thinking belong to any stakeholder that's worked on the project is not just there temporarily and lost it's there forever and that information then can be leveraged through the life cycle of the project and the, and the building Okay and the profile of of clients that you're working with now what would that typically be? So large contractors um so, you know, one of the design engineering companies um, that we've, uh, I suppose, just started working with um, is, you know, they're running, they're working on like the the Sydney Metro um, and these kind of projects. Well, so, so do you work on projects outside of Ireland? Yeah, only. <laughs> only? <laughs> only. We don't have any customers in uh, in Ireland. Why is that? As as it, is it that you haven't focused on the Irish market or you haven't or you haven't promoted yourself to the Irish market? I suppose we haven't. Like, it seems that the bigger companies seem to have, you know, um, like dedicated people, mm-hmm. uh, so digital engineering leads that are focused on improving digital strategy and these workflows between um, different applications. And I think if you look at the Irish contractor, um, um, they're very um, focused on improving resource u- utilization and um I suppose the other side of this as well is that it's a brand new solution. So, you know, there's like, there wouldn't be, maybe they just, mm-hmm. I suppose they, they aren't aware of the value that we could actually bring to the bring to their projects. Well, one of the other things is that they might not see that having um, having manual processes in between to, to connect this data flow, they might not actually see that as a problem because they're thinking, okay, well, we've increased the efficiencies on either side of that person. So having yeah. a person in the middle to to um, to connect them might not actually by, be identified as a problem. Well, yeah, so like the per- I think it comes back to the person not actually being capable of moving the, the quantity of information from system A to system B. So yeah. like on a, on a project, you're talking thousands of files and those thousands of files might have, uh, you know, 10 or 15 pieces of metadata that might move with them or are supposed to move with them. And because these systems aren't compatible, those metadata fields need to be mapped from, say, you know, a creator in system A to what's known as an author in system B. So you have to, or to do this process manually and when information is lost off the off the file or um, the project you know that will pretty much if information is lost increases the risk of the project overall mm-hmm. and in the event of a claim or anything like that you know th- that's really and I'd, I'd say that's why um, the bigger contractors are also more inclined to uh, adopt this technology is because they're dealing with such a such great risk such great uh, number or 
number of uh, files. Yeah. Um, and Construct, uh, Irish construction data, in in my opinion, isn't really being addressed for the resource that it is at the moment. If anything, it's seen its challenge. And in fact, um, through Property District, we've partnered with uh, Dr. Hussam Jerby of Smart PMO to to run a pilot project on Irish construction data for the first six months of 2020, where we're feeding data in to see just to see exactly what insights can we get, you know, and it's it's so funny because we've been reaching out to companies and I actually had one company say, one one chap in a company say to me, look, we have all that information, it's in my head. And I, this, is, this is a person who oversees many large projects and he still sees the data being in his head and he, he didn't feel that technology would be an adequate solution to that. So, you know, when when you're dealing with something like that, how do you go about, you know, how do you go about convincing a construction company that there's value to be added? Um, so I think it comes back to the bottom line. Um, so that's save on human resource mm-hmm. as they're moving information inefficiently from system A to system B. Mm-hmm. Um, an automated solution that pretty much is there is that robot in the middle that doesn't go for coffee breaks doesn't need to go home in the evening and uh, is always on the right side of health and safety yeah yeah. and sole job is to keep these systems in sync um i think that can really bring together um and integrate the systems and stakeholders on a project and yeah for okay um, John, where can people find information about BIM Launcher? So, if you find information on, about BIM Launcher at bimlauncher.com. Um, I'm active on Twitter at on, underscore John Egan. Um, and, yeah, and LinkedIn, obviously. So, head over to bimlauncher.com for more information and they can take it from there with you directly. Great. John, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, John Egan of BIM Launcher. That's it from us in studio today. Thank you for joining us on Property Matters, the show where property matters. Get in touch with the show by emailing hello at iPropertyRadio or on Twitter at iPropertyRadio. Um, we'd like to thank all of our wonderful guests here today. Also, thanks to Peter Rice on sound and show producer Katie Tallon. Back at the same time next week from myself, Carl Tallon, and all the team here. Have a great week. Mm-hmm.